thanks for being here today. It's great to have you join us for this uh, November 12th and 13th, as crazy as it is. We're this far into it all, and uh, I'd like to also wish a belated happy Veterans Day to all our veterans. Thank you so much for serving our country and giving us the freedom to be able to vote, as we hopefully all got the chance to do this week, and what a crazy week it has been. But I will tell you, I'm excited that I get to be here. I'm excited we have the opportunity to be able to share. I'm excited we have the opportunity to dive into our third week of generous living. And if you've been with us, you know that since September, we started a life on mission. And with that life on mission, we talked about the purpose of the church. We talked about the purpose of ourselves. We talked about the purpose of just the lives that we have. And we took that life on mission and made kind of a sub-series with this generous living. And we've been talking about for three weeks this generous living. And the first week, um, we got up and we had the opportunity to talk about a boy who had five loaves and two fish. And those five loaves and two fish didn't seem like much in his hands, But when he gave all generously to Jesus, Jesus took that small amount that he gave and multiplied it to change an entire community. And so we see that, we saw that take place. And then last week, I appreciate Dave McGee getting up and uh, speaking to us last week. His actual name is Dave McGill, but last night one of the ladies said, Dave McGee just really spoke well last week. And I said, okay, I'm just going to let that hang. So... um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, Dave brought, and, and he talked about Santa last week, and that's exactly what we needed to hear about this time of year, and uh, he actually talked about the joy of giving, and how can we be joyful in giving? How can we change our hearts and our minds and our everything to be joyful in giving? And the funny thing is, I looked at those two, I looked at the life on mission, I looked all the way back to the beginning of September, and everything ties together with one thing, and that's our hearts. See, our hearts And the heart issue that we have is, is it about you or is it about God? Because when we've looked at the church and when we've looked at the purpose of the church and when we've looked at our lives and when we've looked at our life on mission and when we've looked at this generous giving, is it about you or is it about God? See, we live in a culture that tells us it's about us. We live in a very selfish culture. Just watch the news this week. Let's be very honest. The reactions from both sides have been selfish. And in that selfishness, we've seen what plays out. If I don't get my way, or because I got my way, the reactions are such, and there's gloating and there's pouting. And and it's an unfortunate thing to see within the society, but when you get 5,000 messages a day that say it's all about you, how else will we respond? And that is why we've taken this time for really the entire first part of the school year when we started back in September to say, it's not about you. Church is not about you. Church is about glorifying God. Your life is not about you. It's about glorifying God. We're to glorify God. We're to edify the believers. And we're to evangelize the world to tell them it's not about them. It's all about God and his glorification. And he came for a purpose to save you and save me so that he could have a relationship with us. It's about him. But how do we get that heart issue? How do we get to that point where we can actually give, and it's not just money, just give of ourselves joyfully and say, it isn't about me. I want to do this to glorify God. How do we do that? How do we get to that place? That's a difficult question to ask because it's a difficult battle that we follow after our hearts so often. If it's a heart issue, how are we to give generously? How are we to live generously? How do we live a life on mission to say, I want my life to matter for God, not just for me? It's a question hopefully we've been answering over these last seven weeks, and we're going to continue even today as we look at it. And we're going to look for, at a handful of passages today to say, how are we going to live for something bigger than ourselves? How are we going to do that? How are we going to, to live our lives in such a generous fashion as to give our time and our talents and our, our treasures and invest them in something that actually matters? And I guess that we have to determine what matters. Is it the temporary or is it the eternal? And last week as Dave was talking, I had a chance to listen to it. And by the way, you did do well, Dave. Not trying to blow your head up or anything like that. Uh, Other than the Santa stuff, everything else was perfect. Exactly. uh, You know, I was waiting for phone calls. You were like, Matt is going to have to clean up messes. I'm like, that's the mess I'm going to have to clean up. Uh, But uh, the the, the cool thing is, is he talked just about the, the idea of this joyful giving. And he actually touched on a passage last week that I'm going to talk about today. And if you have your Bibles with you today, I would love for you to open up the book of Acts chapter 20. 
And Acts chapter 20 is, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of background of it. And as we look at this passage and a couple other passages today, Acts chapter 20 is an interesting passage. It's what Paul believes is the last time he's going to see the elders at Ephesus. And he believes that, that there's a transition that's going to take place and that he's going to go off to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed and he's never going to see them again. So we have to picture as he is talking, he's talking to some close friends, some close people that he's poured into, some close people that he's invested into, and he's going to give them his last words of advice. Now, I want you to pause for just a second and I want you to think about if you knew that you were not going to talk to a family member or a close friend ever again, what would you say to them? You wouldn't waste a whole lot of time. I had the weirdest dream last night, and I'm not even making this up. I had a dream that I was strapped to an electric chair, and I was to be put to death. And they were getting ready to flip the switch, and they said, do you have anything you'd like to share with anybody? And I was trying to, and it's one of those dreams where you can't talk, and you're like, I know you guys wish that dream was true, but uh, the, the idea is, is I was sitting there, and I'm like, I, I just want, and they were right there, and it, it, when I woke up, I went, I, I want to be able to say those last things. I want to be able to communicate these things, and I believe that's where Paul was. He knew that, that he was coming to an end, though he did not get killed when he went to Jerusalem. He knew this would be the last time he was going to see them. So he has some very important words to tell them. So as you read this, read it from that perspective. And as you follow along, here's what it says, starting in verse 26 of Acts chapter 20. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from even among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, because these things are getting ready to happen, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I just think about, there has to be this love for them that for three years he wept over them, he prayed over them, he wanted to make sure that this church was moving in the right direction, that it would glorify God. He says, therefore, and now I commend to you, to God, and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I look at that word, those passages right there, and I remember my mom used to tell me that. And you know when she used to tell me that? It's about for the next month. Because right around Christmas time, and I had this list that I would give to my parents and say, this is what I want. And my parents would say, well, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I'd say, that's bold. Because it's not. Because it's way better to get stuff than it is to give stuff. And that was my idea as a child. And as a child, we have that tendency, and some people just haven't grown up out of that. And the great thing is, is as we look at this, I think Paul is making two very specific things to make these his last words to his friends, to these elders at Ephesus, to these leaders within the church, to make that his last words. What was so important about it? Why would he say, it's better to look towards others than it is towards yourself? It's better to give to God than it is to take for yourself. Why would that be something that was so important that those would be the last words he was going to say? And the other thing I saw is he really points out two things. I mean, two kind of overarching, overall things to say. The first one is this. Remember the gospel, live the gospel. And he says, remember the gospel, live the gospel. He says, remember, that's what brought you your inheritance. Remember, that's what brought you your salvation. Remember, that's what I have taught you. That is what I've prayed over you. That is how I've poured into you. That's the first thing I want you to remember. These are my last words. Remember the gospel, live the gospel. The second thing I believe he's saying is this. It's not about the greed. I didn't live among you in greed. He said, I didn't do this for the money. I didn't get all of this stuff so I could be popular. I didn't get all this stuff so I could live in that $7 million home that's in the middle of Houston. 
I, I didn't do it so we could have a $21 million jet to fly around the United States to do ministry. That's not why I'm doing it. I mentioned those two things because there are pastors that have those things. And they've missed the point. And Paul says, don't miss the point. Don't live in the midst of greed. And I think those are two points that really can tie into one. And the reason why I think those two points can really tie into one is this. When you stop and you think about it and you want to live out the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is about Jesus Christ who came and gave all. And if you're going to live out that gospel and follow him, guess what you're going to do? You're not going to live in greed. You're going to come and you're going to give all. And that's the reason why he ends up with saying it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I looked at that and I said, you know, this is a difficult passage to preach because nobody really wants to hear that. I mean, money is a difficult thing to talk about. Time is a difficult thing to talk about. Where we invest our efforts is a difficult thing to talk about. How do we move in those directions? How do we shift from it being about us to us giving and being willing to live in a generous fashion? How do we have that happen in our lives? And we might think this passage is a downer. Holding us down, oh, we have to give. We have to, we have to, we ought to. If we don't, God's going to get us. You know, those kind of things start going through our head. And we have this guilt feeling inside. But I think when Paul says it and he quotes Jesus, and the funny thing is, is that's the, one of the only, I believe it might be the only quote that is quoted about Jesus that is not found in the Gospels. And so this is something that either Paul in his one-on-one what Jesus has heard, or maybe some sort of oral tradition that has passed down that Jesus said this. We all know that, that uh, at the end of John, it says, if we recorded everything that Jesus said, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold everything. So, so this is just one of those things that stood out. But why was it he had to share this with the elders? Why is it that this is it? Well, it wasn't to hold them down. I believe it was actually to protect them. Because sometimes we can feel bad for not giving enough And we can be guilted into that. But I believe the reason why he said this isn't to make us feel bad for not giving enough. It's to keep us from feeling bad for giving too much to ourselves. Because how many times in our life have you ever bought something and then said, why did I buy that? When you look at it, we are moving this week. So that means we're packing up all of our stuff. And we're emptying out closets and I go, what is that? And why do we have it? My stepmom buys us Pampered Chef stuff all the time. And I say us, meaning Christy. But um, <laughs> the thing is, is that if you know anything about Pampered Chef, it's not cheap. And they have lots of tools that I don't know what they do. We pulled something out of a drawer, and it had a roller about that wide on one side and a roller about that wide on the other side. And I'm like, what is that for? And some of you are like, I know exactly what that's for. Good, you can have it because it doesn't need to be in my drawer anymore. Because it just takes up space. But there's so many things we buy thinking that we need this. And then we go, why did I do that? Or when we get that first payment, we said, why did I buy that? Or whatever it might be. And I believe the reason why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive is because he's trying to protect us from that feeling of, man, I just don't. And I'll be honest with you. As we are protected from focusing on ourselves, I'm going to steal a, a book title from a guy by the name of Chip Ingram. And Chip Ingram wrote a book called The Genius of Generosity. And I read that a while back. And I got to thinking about this genius of generosity and why he would title that. What is so genius about generosity? You know, God has this crazy way of working in coincidences. He talks about certain things. His son talks about certain things that we see actually still apply today. When he talks about what we sow is what we're going to reap. When he talks about being more blessed to give than it is to receive. Did he actually have a clue about what he was talking about? Did he actually have a message that we need to hold on to, that we need to apply to our lives, that may actually be a betterment and a protection for us? What is the genius of generosity? Did he have this coincidence that he said, you know, maybe we should just do this, and it just happens to work out now? So I looked up the word genius. And the word genius, we generally generally have this idea of genius being a person with a high IQ, right? Well, the thing is, is we've kind of narrowed that word down. The actual word genius is defined as this, to produce the personification of quality 
or the great natural ability for a particular activity. So it's a little bit bigger than just being smart. Now, it's being smart within certain activities. It's being able to do certain things. It's being able to produce. But when you say the genius of generosity, I wanted to look up the word generosity as well. And the actual Hebrew means, in generous, means to saturate with water, to give to overflowing, to drink to one's fill. And in the Greek, it actually means ready to distribute. So when we look at those two words and we say the genius, the, the great ability the, uh, to have in this particular activity of generosity to have the overflowing, how can that be something we apply to our lives? How can it be something that is bigger? How, what is so genius about generosity? And I looked at that and I thought about that and I said, you know, a lot of times we think in order to be generous, we have to be this higher up really spiritual person, really be able to do all of these things. And, and then it kind of even in that, we take pride in saying, I'm a really spiritual person, and I want to do these things for myself. And it says, you know, maybe it's something bigger than that. Maybe generosity is just a really smart decision. Because it's going to affect each and every one of our lives. And I said, you know, maybe there's two ways that happens. And I wrote down two things, two simple principles about generosity. Two things I want you to hold on to, and the first one is this, is that generosity works. That is the genius of generosity, is that it works. And you might say, well, how does it work? I'm glad you asked that question, because I have four ways that I wrote down, and very simple things, and things that, that could be easily expanded on, probably be their own message for four weeks if we wanted to do so, but I'm just going to put them all in one. The first way we see it works is in Scripture. If you look throughout Scripture, the word generosity or being generous is throughout. I'm going to just pick out one verse for the sake of time. That verse is found in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, and it says this, a generous man will prosper. A generous man will prosper. You know, the, the books of Proverbs, or, or all the Proverbs, are, are axioms of wisdom. And would you say that is wisdom? A generous man will prosper. What basically that is saying is, is a generous man will be fat. And you look and go, Maybe. I'm, pro I'm prosperous. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're being extra generous or whatever it might be. Actually, the word fat is actually meaning having in abundance. And as it says having in abundance, it means you're going to have something in abundance. And sometimes you might think material, but, but think about this for just a second. When you look at that word, when we prosper, and you go back to the idea of being refreshed with water, if we are pouring out and being generous and pouring out with water, aren't we generally filled by it all? That's actually what leads to my second thing about generosity works, and that is this. Observation. Just look around. Just look around. We're coming up on the Christmas season, are we not? Most of you don't have your trees up. Jerome apparently does. Uh, and uh, I, I try not to rush Thanksgiving. I want to be thankful for other things before we get to Christmas, but that's okay. We all have our own different things, and I'm not making fun of him at all. I didn't pray about it last night. Uh, but, um, you know, the, uh, the thing is, is that, that we look at that, and we look around, and we observe the Christmas season. And really, that's what we'll talk about as one of these points as well. But one of my movies that I like to watch is A Christmas Carol. We have a list of Christmas movies we watch, but I like watching The Christmas Carol, no matter which version. It's Scrooge from Bill Murray to, to the Jim Carrey cartoon version. It does, I like to watch The Christmas Carol. But think about this for just a second. Who's the most miserable person in that movie? Scrooge. I mean, he's got his own... He's got his own everything. It's kind of, kind of held together. Shouldn't he be the most happy because he's the richest guy? Shouldn't he be the one that is, because he's got all that stuff, shouldn't he be even the most happy? I mean, just by observation, money makes us happy, right? Oh, no, but that's how we live, right? So when we look at Scrooge and we say that, uh, he's a, what we might call a miser. And, and a miser is somebody who is not generous. So by observation, we look at this miser, and did you know the word miser actually is the root word for miserable? We have this tendency to think as long as we hold on to it, that we're going to be happier. But really, generosity works just by observation, because who are the people that seem to be the happiest? The ones you hang out with, aren't they the ones that are willing to give? Aren't they the ones that are willing to say, hey, I'll get the check this time? Aren't they the ones who are willing to, to kind of bend over and say, I'll do whatever I can to help you out? Aren't those the people you want to hang out with rather than the people that are like, it's all mine? So by observation, how about this? How about experience? Experience your own personal experience. How do you feel when you help somebody out? How do you feel when you know you should help somebody out but you choose not to? 
just by experience. I'll be very honest with you. The other day I was driving down the road. There was a person on the side of the road trying to change a flat tire. They're obviously struggling with breaking the, the lug nuts on the tire. And I thought, you know what? I should pull over and help. You know what I didn't do? Pull over and help. You know what for the rest of my road trip I thought about? Why didn't I pull over and help? Should I turn, turn around now? Should, all these kind of things start flowing through my head. Isn't that the experience? Because we understand that generosity makes us feel different than holding our own time, our own efforts for ourselves. So you have Scripture points it out. We can observe by looking at it. We can experience by looking at it. And now what I want to do is I want to look at 41 days from today is Christmas. 41 days from today is Christmas. It's on a Sunday. We're going to have a Christmas Day service at 10 o'clock. Love for you guys to be here for that. But when you look at Christmas, let me ask you this question. Starting from, and we'll go the day after Black Friday because people aren't nice on Black Friday. But the day after Black Friday, when people start turning nice again, isn't it weird that for the entire month of December, people are just a little bit happier? Don't they just have a different joy about them? Don't they, uh, don't they want to hold the door open for you or let you in on the line of cars? Don't they? There's just a little bit of a different attitude, right? Because the other 11 months of the year, people are jerks. Let's just be flat honest about it. People are mean, they're rude, they cut you off, they won't let you in line, they do all of these things, but for whatever reason, December changes it. Why do you think that is? Santa Claus is coming and somebody's watching. There's an elf on the shelf that is watching you, and so you want to make sure. Um, you know, th there's, there's those type of mentalities, but, but it is about generosity. Our, isn't our focus just a little bit different during that time of year? Isn't it less about us? Isn't it more about giving and seeing the joy on people's faces when we give so it kind of changes our whole everything? And then when we're done with that, it's not like in the middle of February. You know what? Well, maybe some of you are. I don't. But in the middle of February, you're not like, I'm just going to get something for somebody randomly. That's not our thinking. It's, it's generally because at Christmas time, our, our focus has shifted to generosity. So we see those things that make generosity work. The second thing I want you to see is something I've already mentioned. That's the fact that generosity protects us. And it protects us from us in a spiritual manner. It protects us from how we invest. Generosity protects us from short-sighted, bad investments of our time, our talent, and our treasures. And we, we have this desire in our heart to please ourselves. That is our natural desire, and advertisers feed on that natural desire. And, and we see it, like I've already said, we have time, we have talent, we have treasures that we get to invest every day. You get to choose how you invest it. If we look at generosity, it will change the way that we invest those things. Because whether you purposefully invest or whether you just lackadaisically invest, your time is invested every day. Your treasure is invested every day. Your talents are invested every day. And you know what? If you're an investor in real life, if you invest in the stock market, if you invest in gold, if you invest in those things, what is your experience and what is your desire at the end of that investment? To get a return, right? Because investments give returns. So here's what we need to understand as we look at the fact that generosity protects us. I believe it protects us from bad investments. Because if we invest in such a way that it's all about us for right now, that is going to come back with the return that we saw this week. I truly believe the way that people reacted is because of poor investments. And the way they've invested their time and the way they've invested their treasure and the way they've invested their talents. And that might be their parents that have invested poorly in them. That might be culture that's invested poorly in them. That might be people investing in themselves poorly. The reactions are ridiculous. And I'm not a political person and I don't talk about politics, but it's just plain dumb. And I see it and I say, what is wrong? Why are we like this? It's because we've made bad investments. Generosity, on the other hand, it focuses us on the things that really matter. And it's not us. Because from the very beginning of this whole series, we said it's not about us, it's about God. If our focus is there and being generous with our time to Him and being generous with our talents to Him and being generous with our treasures to Him, it's going to change our perspective on everything. And it's going to help us say, you know, I had somebody say, you got to stop saying that God's on the throne. Guess what? God's on the throne. I'm not going to stop saying it. Because what's going on here really doesn't matter when it boils right down to it because it's not about me. It's not about the President of the United States. It's not about the United States at all. It's all about God. 
It's about his glory and his honor and him stepping up and being the one we turn to. We need to turn to him. We need to focus on him. And you know, the funny thing is, is when we look at Matthew chapter 6, there's, there's three things that Jesus is trying to tell us about how generosity protects us. And he's trying to say, hey, make sure you see this. And he kind of says it in this broad sort of way because he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and he's using it in a way that people can kind of get it and kind of not. And like, what is he really talking about? So we have to dive into it a little bit. And he says three things in Matthew chapter 6. Three times two, as a matter of fact. Because each one of them are two things. You can choose this or you can choose that. And each one of those two is either focus on yourself or focus on God. And so if you pick up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he, he starts off talking about two treasures. Then he goes into talking about two eyes, and then he goes to talk about talking about two masters. So I want to read for you this, and then I want to just kind of unpack it a little bit. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says this. Do not, or the actual word means stop. Stop laying up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either hate the one and love the other, or who be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I look at that and I see, okay, t- three very specific passages that he's talking about here. Three very specific twos, but they both, or all three of them, have the same two things in common. Either to focus on yourself or to focus on God. When he says stop storing up treasures for yourself, what does he mean? What's he saying in that passage? Is, is he telling us that, that we should not save? I don't believe he is. Because Proverbs chapter 6 very much tells us to observe the ant who stores up and be like that. So he's not saying don't save. He's saying, hey, don't invest. No, because in Proverbs chapter uh, 13, it actually says we need to compound what God has entrusted to us. So it says it's okay to invest. Does it say we shouldn't have nice things or, 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 be enjoy, or enjoy nice things? No, it doesn't, because 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, God has provided for you all things to richly enjoy. So what is he saying in this? And my thinking comes back to this. And it is the fact that there's a word in there called yourself. That's where the focus is. Are you going to focus all of your time, all of your energy, all your devotion, all your money to satisfying you? And if you are, that's a bad investment. And he goes on to tell us why. Why is it a bad investment? Because if we focus on us, there's things here like moths and rust that are going to destroy those things. And as he's talking to these people then, they didn't have the stock market. What they invested in was actually clothing and nice clothing. And back in those days, clothing didn't, didn't uh, go out of style quite as quickly. So it wasn't like if your dad's like, hey, I saved some nice clothing for you, and you're like, hey, those butterfly collars and bell bottoms, they kind of came, went, came back and went again, so I don't want them. Um, you know, and, and so you look at that, and, and we see it as clothing, but they would buy nice silk garments. They would buy nice purple things because purple was a sign of royalty. They would buy these things in order to pass down to their descendants, and they would invest their mo- money, they would invest their time, into, they would invest all those areas. Same thing they would do with grain or precious metals. And that's the reason why he says, hey, don't invest in those because those things can be destroyed by moths. Those things can be destroyed by rust. And that word rust actually can be turned as well to say uh, by mice. And we look at that and you say, well, if I'm investing in grain, mice can destroy that. If I'm investing in precious metals, rust can destroy that. If I'm investing in clothing, that means that, that moth can destroy that. Those are bad investments. Instead, he says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. And we say, how do we do that? How do we do that? What does it look like when we do that? How do we start storing up treasures in that sort of way? You know, it's funny. I, I uh, was listening to Dave's message last week, and, and I was already had this story done. I'm like, oh, he stole it, and I'm glad I listened, so I didn't say the same story again. But uh, the, the idea of D.L. Moody, if you were here last week, and D.L. Moody being willing to invest in one person and pour into him, and that person became an evangelist who invested into another person, who then all the way down the line ended up investing into a guy we all know as Billy Graham. And that just that one investment years and years and years before had an eternal reward. 
And that is how we invest and lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Instead of investing in the temporary that moth and rust can destroy, instead, instead we can lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven by investing in things that are eternal. I'm not going to be too uh, coy about this. I'm not going to be like all sneaky about it. But you've got a card on your chair. And on your chair, uh, or if it's not on your chair, it's next to you. It says volunteer card on top of it. You have time, you have talents, you have treasure. Where are you investing those things? I would hope that you see Paragon Church and God, even bigger than Paragon Church, obviously, as a place where you can invest your time and your talent and your treasure. But you have different gifts. I don't know your gifts. I can't say, hey, you look like you do really well with little kids. There's some space back there we need to fill. Would you be willing to do that? I can't do that, but if you fill out that card and tell me, I like little kids, I can take that card and I can pass it to Lori Lau or I can pass it to Miriam Trevelyan or I can pass it on to somebody and say, take this and make sure you follow up with them, then we have this weird connection that takes place that we've been trying to do for like six years, and that connection takes place, and we say, I am willing to give my time and my talent and my treasure in these areas, and whatever area that might be, and I even left a blank on there that says other, because maybe there's something that's on there, you're like, no, I got this great idea, good, share it with me. Let's use your time and your talent and your treasure for God's glory, not for ours, not for our temporary, any of those kind of things like that. That is how we lay up. Then it switches when he's talking. He switches to two eyes. And he talks about these two eyes, and one is a good eye and one is a bad eye. And we look at the good eye. Uh, he's basically saying this. Where is your focus? What is it that you're looking at? Are you looking at God, who is representative of light? Or are you looking at yourself, which is the representative of darkness? Are you investing in yourself and focusing everything on yourself? See, here's the deal. Where our body goes is all directed by what we see and how we see it. Let that sink in for a second. Where our body goes is all directed by what we see and how we see it. The filters that we have determine how we act. The filters that we look at with an election, just use that because it's fresh. That filter that we have causes us to react or act in a certain way. If you're on Facebook, ouch. There's a lot of stuff going around out there right now. And it's either really this way or really that way. And people are acting these two ways because of the way they see it. But let me ask you this. If you're focused on God and not focused on yourself, shouldn't that change your perspective? Shouldn't that be how generosity protects us? Isn't that what Jesus is talking about, where our focus is? Because, man, if Christmas is 42 days away, that means Black Friday is about, what, 10, 12 days away? Black Friday is ridiculous. The day after the day we give thanks for everything that we have, we have to rush out and get everything that we don't for a, for a little bit better price. Uh, I mean, really, it, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. But sometimes when we focus on ourselves, we lose that. We lose that idea of Thanksgiving. That's what he's talking about with the two eyes. Here's the thing. He talks about two treasures. Where is your focus at? He talks about two eyes. Where is your focus at? Then he goes to these two masters. And he says this in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we look at that and we say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, what he's talking about there is he's saying, okay, you're a slave. And you're on the auction block. And you're standing up there and there's a master over here that wants to purchase you. And that master over here wants to purchase you. And there's another master over here that wants to purchase you. And guess what they're going to do? They're one or the other is going to purchase you. They're not both going to come together and say, you know what? Well, how about I get him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? You get him Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we'll give him Sunday off because we're Christians. That, that's, that's, not the, that's not the way it's going to work. It's going to be one of those things where it's going to be this guy is going to buy you and he's going to own you and he's going to use you, or this guy is going to buy you and he's going to own you and he's going to use you. Well, guess what Jesus is saying here? Either God's going to own you because he bought you, or the culture is going to own you and buy you, and use you. They both can't work together. So who is it that owns you? Who is it that directs your steps? Who is it that takes these steps and is involved in your life? And my thing is, is that, that I really struggle with here is this. I believe human beings, and unfortunately human beings are what make up the church, I believe human beings are addicted to culture. We're addicted to the things that culture is. Every human being struggles with where to find value, and that includes the people that make up the church. And we all think this. If I have blank, 
then I am something. If I have blank, then I am someone. My question is to you, what fills in that blank? What fills in that blank? Is it stuff? If I have stuff, then I will be someone. If I have this kind of clothing, then I will be someone. If I have this kind of car, then I will be someone. If I have whatever stuff that might be, if I have abilities, then I will be someone. If I could only, then I would be someone. Or, is it the flip side? If I have Jesus, then I am someone. If I have God's grace, then I am someone. What fills in that blank? The crazy thing is, is as Christians, we know the Sunday school answer. The last two sound the best. That's the one that Matt wants to hear. You're right. Those are the ones I want to hear. That's the ones I want to hear for my own life. But the problem is, is that how does my life reflect that? I can give you whatever answer I want, but where is my time and my talent and my treasure going into an investment-wise? Is it saying the same thing? And that's where living generously happens. That's how generosity works. That's how generosity protects us, is to fill in that blank with what is right. You know, I've been in church for a long time. Maybe you have too. But there's something I found out when I first started going to church. There's only one treasure in this world that died for me. There's only one treasure in this world that gave up everything for me. Every other treasure in this world is one that I might be willing to die for. Every other treasure in this world is one that I might be willing to give up everything for. There's only one treasure in the world that died for me and gave up everything for me. How should I respond? And that is where this whole idea of living generously comes in. You see, I said we're addicted to culture. I believe we're intoxicated by culture. And when you stop and think about those two words, the addiction and the intoxication, my guess is it's just like any other addictive drug or intoxicating drink that we have in our life. When you stop and think about it for two seconds, what does an intoxicated person say when you say, I think you've had enough? I could, I, one more. I've got it all under control, right? What does somebody who's an addict say when you say, you've got a problem? I've got it under control. Because isn't in NA and isn't in AA the first step admitting that you have a problem? That's the first step you have to take. And when you look at that and you think about that in our own lives, in our own places, if we are addicted to culture and we are intoxicated with culture, don't we have to first admit that we have a problem? Don't we have to first take a look at our own lives and say, am I living generously? Am I giving my time and my talent and my treasure generously? Am I doing it that way or am I only investing in myself because I just need one more fix? How is it? How is it that that comes across? And you know, the thing is, I look at that and uh, there's a, a quote by a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. And actually, um, uh, Ken Black shared this with me the other day, but it says this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's the truth. Just one more fix. It's just going to hold us just a little bit longer. It just has to be a little bit bigger to get that rush or that feel or whatever that might be that comes from it. Everything on earth is here to enslave you. Treasures will run your life and treasures will ruin your life. So my question is, is what are we filling in that blank with? And if you know you have a problem, how do we break it? I can, I can sum it up my inner mom. And really lay a guilt trip on you. That's a good way to break it, right? Guilt trips always work. Appeal to the will. That's what I wrote down first. You know, eternity is a long time. Invest now for 60, 70, 80 years. Or invest in eternity that lasts forever. Your choice. I could do that. I could say that. And that, that actually works. I could appeal to your mind and tell you about the eternal investment. I could say, hey, those cards, when you go back there and work out with those kids, they're going to uh, have an eternal investment as you change the lives. If you work with the youth, you realize, I probably told you this before, but there were two people who worked in the junior high group at Galilee Baptist Church on 49th Avenue in Tierra Buena in Glendale, Arizona, that they drove a Valari uh, station wagon. They didn't have a lot. He was a construction worker. He didn't do a whole lot, but he took time to work with a punk kid like me. 
And you know that I was because I'm a punk now. I'm just not a kid anymore. So the, the thing is, is that, that you look at that and you look at the investment that he made in my life. My guess was when he decided that when I went to summer camp that he would take a week off of his construction job to go to summer camp, to take a week of his vacation to go to summer camp, that when he invested in me and saw me come to the Lord as, as make Jesus my personal Savior, when he did that, I don't think that he was thinking, well, Matt will be a preacher someday. I wasn't thinking I was going to be a preacher someday. Even when Christy said, you're going to be a preacher someday, I'm like, no, I'm not. Going to be a teacher. Got my degree right here. It's in there on the floor. It's not even hanging on the wall. You know, the thing is, is, is we, we forget how important that is. That's another appeal, isn't it? I can appeal to you in that way. How about I appeal to you in emotion? The fact there's need everywhere. Starts with our church goes into our community, goes into our state, goes into our nation, goes into our world. How about I appeal to you emotionally and I play you a, a commercial about the fact today is Adoption Sunday. National Orphan Sunday is today. And you look at the numbers and you say, do you realize that there are 400,000 kids in the foster care system in America? 100,000 of those are ready to be adopted right now. 30,000 of them will age out by the end of this year, which means when they age out, they turn 18 and they have no family. And generally, negative consequences come because of that. How about I tell you that and appeal to your emotion? How about I tell you that there are 317,000 Bible-believing churches in America? That means that if one out of every three churches just stopped and said, we are going to adopt a child from the foster care system, the foster care system wouldn't be necessary anymore. What if I told you that? I could appeal to your emotions. As a matter of fact, I'm going to appeal to your emotions. Can you run that commercial for me, Corey? I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I didn't know my father. I was alone. Helpless. Helpless. I had no family. I didn't belong to anyone. To anyone. To anyone. I was an orphan. No one saw me. No one knew me. I was invisible. I was lost. I was lost. No one claimed me. No one said, he's mine. She's mine. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was hungry. Like all the food in the world couldn't fill me up. I was vulnerable, unprotected, at risk, cold, tired, tired, tired. I thought I didn't matter. I thought no one cared. No one cared. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. But I was found. But I was found. I was found. Someone stepped in. Someone saw me. I was sought. Pursued. Wanted. Known. I was an orphan. But now I belong. Now I belong. Now I belong. I'm embraced. A sister. A brother. I know my father. I know my father. I know my father. I was an orphan, but I am loved. At great cost, I am restored. I'm restored. And for the first time, I know that I am valued. Prized. Forever. 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 I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. We're all orphans. So I care for orphans. So I care for orphans. I was an orphan. So I care for orphans. You know, I don't know what God would call you to do. To invest your time and your talents and your treasure. And maybe it's to that extreme. And I'll tell you what, it's not the easiest thing in the world. I know we have three families in here that, that, that work with the foster care system that are adopting through the foster care system. And all three of them I have talked to and said, hey, this isn't easy. This time last year, we were sitting in China trying to figure out what these two kids were doing and what was going to happen next. And a year later, I said, I'm so glad that God is God and that he's changed lives and he's working on them. And seeing those kind of things, I can appeal to you in those sort of ways, and I can say, here's it. This is the way to break it. But, you know, the problem with that is, is you can hear that. You can see that video. You can walk out of here and go, okay, that was great. Go eat dinner. Go eat lunch, whatever it might be. Go watch whatever football games on TV and be like, okay, my mind's done. But here's where I want to appeal to you the most. 
Here's the way I believe that breaks it even better than those three appeals of guilt that comes from my inner mom. It's found in five letters. Those five letters are this, G-R-A-C and E. Grace. Do you realize the grace of God that he poured out on us, that he gave to us, how generous he was, that he had everything but you, so he was willing to give up everything for you? Sometimes you might think, well, uh, grace, what is that? Let me give you the cool little Sunday school definition. As you break it down, it's an acronym. Here's what it says. God's riches at Christ's expense. We've been given everything. And everything, what it really boils right down to it is God's. Our time is his. Our treasure is his. Our talent is his. He's given us everything. He could easily take all of it away at any point in time. How we invest it is what he's calling us to do. He's asking us to, to, to ask that question of ourselves. Will you live generously for him or will you live selfishly for yourself? It's a very simple question, and the thing is, is we only have one of the other two options. So what shall you do? What shall I do? It's a question that we need to let sink in. As we live generously, I believe if we focus on him, if we have our eyes in the right place, that we have that, if we're focused on that master, if we're focused on that treasure, that I don't have to appeal to your will, I don't have to appeal to your emotion, I don't have to appeal to your heart, I don't have to appeal to your mind, because I think everything else will just fall into place because our focus is right. So my challenge to you today is get your focus right, please, and focus on living this life for God. It's not easy, but it's definitely well worth the investment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for today, and thank you for the way that you speak to us through your word. Thank you for for challenging us to be yours, for allowing us to be yours through your grace, your riches poured out on us through your son's expense. Nothing that we earned, nothing that we deserved, nothing that we needed uh, to, to try and do on our own, but we needed it so we could have a relationship with you. We needed it because our lives were self-centered. We needed it because our lives were pointed at us. Everything we invested, everything we did, every way we, we moved was about us. But God, that's not what you created us for. You created us for you, for your pleasure, for your glory, for your honor. God, help us to live up to that. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to understand that our time and our treasure and our talents are not our own, but they are yours, that you've given to us, to lend to us, to invest in a way that sees an eternal impact. God, there's people that are being tugged in all different directions in here today. You've gifted us in a certain way to do certain things, and I pray, God, they use those gifts for your honor and your glory. Whether it be something small and just working in the nursery to something big to stepping into the foster care system or anywhere in between, whatever it might be, God, you've given us gifts to invest in your eternal purpose. Help us to put those gifts in the right places. Maybe there's somebody in here today that heard for the first time that your riches are available to them through Christ's expense because of your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that they come down and they talk to me today to have their questions answered about who you are and why you would even bother to do that. God, guide us and direct us. Use us in your way. Use us for your glory. Even as we leave this building, it's great to come together, but it's even better to go out and share this grace and mercy with others. We pray it in your name. Amen. Guys, I'm going to be down here in the front, and I would love to pray with you. I would love to have an opportunity. Maybe God's tugging on you to do something. You're like, I just don't know how. I'll be very honest with you. I was sharing with somebody the other day, the day that uh, Christy laid in Dolly's picture on my lap two and a half years ago, July 27th. I can even tell you the day. Two and a half years ago, she laid on my, pa- my lap and said, I think this is it. And I went, oh. He was sickly. He had a bonnet on. I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. It was just kind of one of those things. And, and from the perspective of, of that, you know what the first thing I thought of was? We bring him into our house, the rest of our life changes. And I kind of like my life the way it is. But I'll tell you now, after praying and saying, God, lead me where you want me to go, I would love to say I did it all on my own, but it was his leading on my heart that, that pointed us in the direction to get in Dolly and then pointed us to get us Levi and Lily as well. To say it's not about 
me. It's about God and making an internal investment in three children's lives that are going to be changed forever. That's just a small picture. What is God doing to you? What do you have to pray about to be led to go to where God wants you to go? To do what God wants you to do. How? Because you have to break your heart. Because I told you right up front, it all starts with a heart issue. I'll be down here in front to pray with you about that. week has been a little crazy, and he also pointed out in his message that we sometimes fall in love with culture, and I'm reminded of, well, this song that we're singing is called Always, and it's taken from Psalm 121, where it says, I look to the hills, from where does my help come? And he goes on to say, well, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I think sometimes we get caught up in looking for help at a horizontal level here on earth and we forget that our help comes from God who made heaven and earth in whatever form that is and I just want to remind you kind of going along with Matt what was talking about I think sometimes what stops us from really giving and, and allowing God to utilize us to the fullest is our own fear our own doubts of our inadequacies Because we're looking with our physical eyes. And I think of 2 Kings where the king of Syria is coming against the camp of Israel in Dothan and, and the servant of Elisha is freaking out because there's tons of chariots and, and the army is all around and camped all around them. And he's like, there's so many of them. And Elisha prays, God, open his eyes that he'll see. And then he sees the chariots of fire that are all around him. So whatever, wherever you're at, whether you're doubting your own abilities, it's not about you. It's about God's capabilities to work through you. If you feel that there's chaos all around, God is our anchor. And so this song, it, uh, my God will not delay. He's our refuge, our strength always. We will not fear because his promise is true. Our God will come through always. So let's sing that with bold assurance.